Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Man, do we have a show for you. We're going to be continuing on some of our festivist week uh, ideas. We'll be talking about some spending that the state's doing, out of control, ridiculous spending, spending that goes against our values today. We'll also have a special legislative update from Representative John Hodgson. Now, understand this. I've reached out to a lot of representatives asking if they'd like to record a few minute long legislative update for you, the listeners. This is open to any legislator, regardless of even their party or regardless of uh, whether I like them as a legislator or not, simply because I want you to be able to hear what they say they've got working on. But me playing this or having their audio on the show doesn't mean I necessarily support them or support anything that they're talking about. It just means that I want you to be better informed in what everybody is saying. I do think that is part of my calling here. Make sure everybody stays as informed as possible on what their state and their government is doing. But before we dig into it, please make sure you are sharing this show out. If you're listening on WZXI, make sure you're joining us every Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. If you're listening elsewhere, the show comes out at 1 p.m. But make sure you're comment, liking, subscribing, sharing, pushing that out there, telling others about the show because, as I said, it's so incredibly important that everybody stay engaged. As a reminder, you can reach out to the show at info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. I just got some stuff sent over to me uh, here recently from some listeners, some good information that I will be using in future episodes. So those kinds of things help out. But also, if you disagree with what I have to say, love to hear your opinion. I'd love to talk about it here on air. Don't worry. I'll protect your identities per se. I won't put you on blast. I'll just say your first name. I'm not here to make make anybody look bad necessarily. But if you disagree with what I'm saying, I want to hear about it. Now, before we dig into everything else we have today, there was a story that came up over the course of the holiday week there, and that was McConnell's approval rating sinks to a new low of only 6%, according to a mammoth poll this year from the Hill. So Cinder Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, here out of Kentucky, has apparently an approval rating of only 6%, meaning only 6% of Americans approve of the job he is doing. So essentially nobody approves of the job he is doing. He got a 60% disapproval rating. Here's the other interesting thing. He's the only member within congressional leadership to have a negative score amongst fellow Republicans. He has just a 10% approval rating with Republicans and a 41% disapproval rating. So when you look at the general populace, only 1%, only 4% more of Republicans, overshare Republicans actually think he's doing a good job. Only 10%. And I bring that up just to point how out of touch some people amongst our so-called elitist Republican political class here in Kentucky are. You know, when I was there on election day at the party, the state party's party, election day party, where of course everybody won except Cameron, and during all the victory speeches, what did we hear? We heard people saying thank you to McConnell during those victory speeches. Almost everybody said, oh, I want to thank Mitch McConnell. 
Nobody said thank you, Rand, which we'll return to that in a second. But all of them pretty much said thank you, Mitch McConnell. Even Cameron thanked McConnell and McConnell's chief of staff who delivered him his absolutely horrible loss. And so it just goes to point out they're out of touch. I mean, remember, uh, recently we heard Mac Brown, outgoing former uh, state GOP chair up until a few weeks ago, giving an interview and McConnell came up and he said, yeah, I know some people don't like him, but he's done a lot of good things. Some people don't like him. Well, not just some people don't like him, nearly everybody doesn't like him. I'd be curious to see what that approval rating would be just within Kentucky itself. Uh, I, I got a feeling it wouldn't be very high or even possibly lower. Now, for some of you that say, well, you know, they just don't like him because, you know, he's a common punching bag. They don't understand what he does, right? Remember, McConnell wrote the book, The Long Game, where he talked about how his politics is all about the long game for him. But however, what have we seen delivered to us under McConnell's leadership in the Senate? What have we seen? Well, we've seen nothing but abysmal losses to the conservative side of things. Nothing but losses on the Republican side of things. Now you may say, well, Andrew, we won the Senate at times. We had the House. We had the presidency. What do you mean by losses while McConnell's in office? I'm not just talking about losing elections. It's You can win elections. You can lose elections. It really doesn't matter if you don't get anything done. And McConnell has been absolutely key in ensuring that the leftist agenda, the far left agenda, marches on. I mean, take a look here. Let's let's take a look at um, House uh, Majority Leader Mike Johnson, right? He just kicked off his tenure. He's got a 17% approval, only 31% disapproval. And amongst Republicans, he has a 37% approval, 5% disapproval. So only 5% of Republicans disapprove of what Mike Johnson's doing compared to McConnell, who has a disapproval rating amongst Republicans of 40 1%. 41%. That's a massive difference. Apparently, the only people who disapprove of what uh, uh, you know Mike Johnson's doing is probably the people that say, one, he's kind of, you know, why, why did we replace McCarthy to get Mike Johnson, right? But two, probably a lot of those same people are the ones who approve of the job McConnell is doing. Why? Well, Obviously, because Mike Johnson, while you may not like everything he does, has done a better job of at least fighting for those conservative principles. If it was left up to McConnell, there would not be a fight over border security right now. McConnell would be funding the Ukraine war, clean on its own because he thinks it's the most important thing in the world, ignoring funding for the border. But Mike Johnson's continued push to say, no, we got to have the border stuff in there just goes to show what kind of having that conservative backbone can do? I understand you can't get it all at once. I understand you have to make compromises, but McConnell's done compromise so much of the quote unquote Republican platform and conservative beliefs that there's not much left to look at. There's not much left. He, he's, he's compromised it all away. So it just goes to show just how people feel. But the question also becomes, why does McConnell continue to have such a grip, but meanwhile, Rand Paul doesn't? And this is one thing, and, and I've mentioned this in the past, where I wish Rand Paul would do more. See, over the years, McConnell has done a lot within the state to bring on the people that he agrees with to be candidates, whether that's funding them, providing them money. He's got a pack that he gives money to people to, uh, helping push them forward. I mean, take a look at our current constitutional officers. 
removing Bashir, you have Allison Ball, who, remember, signed his paperwork to file for re-election in 2020. You have uh, uh, our, our new AG, Russell Coleman. He was used to work for McConnell's staff, and then McConnell got him appointed to that Western Kentucky District Prosecution. You have Jonathan Shell. He was the campaign chairman. He's the current agriculture commissioner. He was campaign chairman for McConnell in 2020. Michael Adams, former attorney for McConnell, worked with McConnell. And you just see it. It's, it's all full of it. And that is because he's done a good job. Whether I agree or disagree with the results, for his purposes, he's done a good job affording the people that support him and his beliefs in the state. And with McConnell on the way out, we need to be thinking about who do we want to replace him? And more importantly than that, almost calling on Rand, who will become the senior citizen, senior citizen. Yeah, uh, they're all senior citizens. The senior senator from Kentucky to step up to the plate and start working in the same way McConnell did to ensure that people who support his values, which better represent the Republicans and conservatives in this state, are th that people he supports and believes are able to get done what needs to get done when election here in the state. It's time for him to step up, and I hope we see it. Well, coming up after this, we'll be going over some of that spending. We're going to be mainly looking at, right off the bat, um, the uh, salaries. So we're going to take a look at salaries today. That's what we're going to dig into. Uh, so stay tuned with us here about the millions we're wasting in salaries for jobs that are just absolutely ridiculous. After this short break, you'll listen to The Andrew Kubrater Show. Remember, you can reach out to the show by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. We'll see you back here in just a few few. Short minute. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter show. As I mentioned earlier on yesterday's show and earlier, this is kind of my festivist week where I start going through some of the out of control spending. Yesterday's show, I was talking about some of the contracts. I went over $54 million worth of contracts that are an absolute waste, in my opinion, here in Kentucky. You can disagree with me. If you do so, email me, info at theandrewshow.com. Give me your feedback. Give me what you think I'm wrong on. But regardless, we have absolutely uh, been digging into this yesterday. And we'll continue on that today. This time we're going to zero in on salaries, but very specific salaries. You see, I always said that Cameron's worst decision he made was not being able to conceptualize for the Kentucky voter what would be different about a Cameron administration versus a Bashir administration. And this is where it would be. Things like this, the salaries, the contract approvals, those kinds of things. Why? Because generally speaking, the way our budget system works here in Kentucky is that the legislators appropriate large pots of money for these individual departments to spend. They do not go down to the penny saying, okay, you can spend $10 on pencils, $20 on paper. You can spend this amount on this. No, they say, here's your budget. Now spend it how you wish. They do sometimes have writers for special projects saying, hey, this is a special project we want done. Here's a certain amount of money for you to get that project done. Like with fixing our unemployment system, something that, oh, by the way, still hasn't been done. But the governor's administration ultimately has a lot of discretionary control over how those dollars are exactly spent unless it goes against a rule created by the legislature. We'll be going into that here 
in a second. So I want to go through some of this because really the, the, the real problem with the governor's Bashir's administration versus Cameron administration was that, is that Bashir spends money attacking our values. It isn't just that he's a far left liberal and we just leave it at that. It's that Bashir's a far left liberal who has access to the coin purse. He has access to your pockets and they use that money to fund this crazy liberal agenda, this, this diverse diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. Maybe you've been hearing people talking about this more, but this idea that of course, everybody's a victim other than straight white men and that your, your skin color, your gender, uh, you know, your sexuality, so immutable characteristics and then your state of mental illness when it comes to the transgenderism, of course, is somehow determining or somehow is important to the government and to to what how they operate. They got to make sure that black people and white people are being treated differently. It's not enough to create the same programs, make them available to everyone regardless of their immutable characteristics. No, they have to make sure that they take your money, then use it in racist ways. And so we hear about this diversity and inclusion. So I'm going through some of these salaries, some of these people, what they work for, what their titles are, so you can better understand how they're using these dollars to attack us. Now we're going to start off with a, a few universities. It's going to come up that we have universities here. And here's why. Public universities are a part of, and they are taxpayer funded. You know, recently I was talking about WKU. Some people saw that Twitter post talking about them spending ridiculous amounts of money or are hiring lobbyists and then the state approving that, the state legislature approving that. But, you know, 25-ish percent of WKU's budget, it comes from you, the taxpayer. It comes from the general fund. That's why when they're spending money on this, we should call it out. Remember, dollars are fungible. If we're if if they have the money to be spending millions on these ridiculous salaries, well then that's millions they shouldn't be getting. That is my humble opinion. But regardless, let's go into it. So first, uh, we've got the chief diversity and Title IX coordinator at the Northern Kentucky University receiving one hundred and fifty six thousand eight hundred and seventeen dollars a year. We have assistant vice president and diversity officer at WKU receiving $115,704 a year. Charles Holloway, chief diversity officer at Moorhead State University, $86,700. Executive assistant to senior uh, vice president of diversity, uh, Diane Whitlock, getting paid $82,416. Bruce E the second, I guess he's the director of diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion at Northern Kentucky university, $72,000 a year, George R. Galen, assistant Dean of student diversity at Eastern Kentucky university, $65,664 a year, uh, diversity services director at the university of Kentucky, $59,040. And then, so that's the universities pushing for this DEI stuff being funded with your tax dollars. But then we have something else that's interesting. These next, uh, a few here. Oh, sorry. That's not all. Sorry. Uh, a supplier diversity and business enterprise coordinator, whatever that is, 54K UK, a diversity education director. Uh, $51,921 at University of Kentucky and a diversity recruitment officer at WKU getting paid $36,000 a year. Got to make sure, you know, it's not enough that just whoever wants an education can get one at WKU. They got to make sure you have the right skin hue. 
We have a few others here. Associate Vice President for Institutional Equity and Equality, University of Kentucky, getting $139,399 a year. We got Brandon D. Williams, who's the Interim Director of Institutional Equity, getting paid $70,946 at EKU. So those are some of the university people, right? We got Ricardo Narazzo Colon, I think. Uh, title: He's the Director of Student Inclusion and Leadership Development at Morehead State, $69,644 a year. So those are universities that are creating this liberal culture and they're using our tax dollars to do it. You, if you're a conservative, your dollars are literally funding your demise as they create this quote unquote culture of diversity, equity, inclusion, what that really means is this culture of caring about skin color, caring about gender, caring about immutable characteristics instead of focusing on the person themselves. But it's not just in universities. The court of justice, the judicial system here in Kentucky has three people with the title of equity and inclusion coordinator being paid 63,344, 54,330 and $52,905. Their official titles equity and inclusion coordinator at the uh, at the Court of Justice at the AOC. What is an equity and inclusion coordinator doing in the Court of Justice? I mean really, what's the point of their job? What, what are they doing? Because let's think about this for a second here, okay? Let's say you're like, well, we want equity in hiring. What's that mean? Almost every judge is elected in this state. Not every judge. Every judge is elected in the state. So, you know, you can't really have a diversity, equity, and inclusion in judges. They're elected positions. They're not hired. So then that comes into, well, how about the administrative staff? Well, why sh we should be using uh, these, these are entity. This entity is funded by our tax dollars and we should be using our tax dollars to hire the best people we can to do the job to the best they can. We shouldn't be caring about immutable characteristics. I can't say it enough, but yet for some reason, our judicial system has three people in charge of making sure that they hire enough, I guess, black people and women's and minorities and everything else. Not that it matters to the quality of the outcome and what part of justice, last I checked, justice is supposed to be blind, but apparently not here in Kentucky. And this manifests itself and this culture that's being created manifests itself like we saw in that ruling out of a judge here in Lexington where they dismissed murder charges against a person because they said that the prosecutor's office has been charging black people too much. And so therefore he's not innocent of murder, but we're just going to dismiss these charges because well, we just we just think you're being racist. You know, never mind the fact the prosecutor, of course, is a black female, but they think that she's racist and therefore they're charging black people too much, of course. Ridiculous. But it's our tax dollars funding that, destroying our own society here. We've got, uh, and then you turn to our board of education. Okay, so this goes into our, our public schools, right? So the Kentucky Board of Education creates this DEI toolkit. Outside the millions of dollars it costs to develop the toolkit and then disperse it out. So now you're infecting our public schools with this thought process of staring at a student's skin color and gender 
and being the only thing you care about instead of ignoring that and putting that to the side. And, and why that becomes such a problem, if it isn't self-explanatory, is we can look at uh, conversations that school districts like Fayette County is having. You know, recently Fayette County Schools said, hey, we discovered that uh, minority kids are being punished at a higher rate for being late to school. So let's look at changing our late policies, attaching the inability to show up to school on time or at all to a person's skin color removes your ability to solve the problem because the real problem to fixing this wouldn't be to look at their skin color. You would ignore that. You would say, are they not getting to school on time? Are they late? Are they not showing up because they're coming from a single parent household? And that's where we need to address these resources. We need people, what, to knock on the door and make sure that they get on their butts on the bus because maybe the single parents at work, so the kid has to put themselves on the bus and they're falling short. We don't want that, that parent to have to leave work. We want them working and being able to provide for their family a path to dignity. So let's do something simple like knock on the door to make sure the kid is showing up to school. But instead of proposing a simple solution like that, they say, hey, let's just allow minority kids to show up to school late or not at all more than white kids, which is nothing but racism and forwarding these ideas, your tax dollars, your tax dollars. And we'll be looking at what kind of salaries the Board of Education is handing out here. And the overall effect of these salaries this waste is having yearly on our Kentucky on Kentucky taxpayers after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Kubrater Show. We'll see you back here in just a few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. So before the break, we we're talking about the State Board of Education paying out these big massive salaries to these coordinators to make sure that the public schools have the proper DEI things in place to make sure that these are public schools are judging people based upon their skin color and gender, and then adjusting the standards for people based upon simply immutable characteristics like that. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you know, a, a racism, a bigotry of low expectations. So starting us off, we have the director, the main deputy commissioner, the person in charge of the DEI program for the state of Kentucky, Thomas Tucker, being paid $160,000 a year. It is so important to the Bashir administration that we judge school children on race and gender it's so important to them that we make sure that if a kid walks in and says, you know, I, I think I might be a girl and I'm really a boy, that we hide it from the parents or we make sure that we reinforce those ideas. It's so important to them to not address the looming issues gathered through those kinds of pushes, those kinds of liberal ideology pushes. It is more important to them to go ahead and push out these toolkits, toolkits that say things like if a kid comes to you and says they're struggling with their gender identity, something that the school is probably causing, you don't tell the parent about it. No, you should hide it from the parent. That is the, the, the toolkit that people like this have put out here in Kentucky. So Thomas Tucker being paid 160K, and then you got a Malik Williams being paid 85,860K, another coordinator there a program manager. Now there's another guy uh, by the name of Damien Sweeney that is also listed as a part of the leadership program there. I couldn't find the salary for him anywhere online. I don't know if he's left or if they're hiding it because they attempted to hide this too. 
Because while Thomas Tucker, if you look online, right, his uh, official title, Deputy Commissioner and Chief Equity Officer, Damien Sweeney's is Diversity of uh, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And then uh, Malika Williams is Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Coordinator. While you look at that, when you see their actual titles listed on the public searchable uh, salary search, what you find for Thomas Tucker, for example, is uh, a KDE deputy commissioner. And for Williams, you find a ed academic program manager, but that's not their titles. When you look at the board of education's own website, because they're trying to hide it from people like you and me. So we can't conceptualize how much money they're spending on this. And all totaled, if we add up all the money, that all these places have spent, all these departments have spent on these dollars, on this. We're looking at $1.593 million. $1.593 million. Real quick, we have a message from John Hodgson. He is the uh, Republican representative out of Louisville. Once again, just because I'm playing his legislative update doesn't mean I support what he puts in here. doesn't mean I, I like him or hate him. It doesn't mean anything other than I want you to be informed. So here is John Hodgson's legislative update that he recorded for you all. Hello, this is John Hodgson, state representative for District 36 in Eastern Jefferson County, coming to you with a 2024 legislative preview. 2024 is a 60-day legislative budget session that runs pretty much every weekday from January 2nd through April 15th. The Constitution requires us to produce a balanced budget every two years, and that's going to be job one. And it'll be accomplished, frankly, with or without any meaningful cooperation from the governor's office, as it has been the last couple of budget cycles. My main goal will be to continue to shrink the cost of government and put our state on firm financial footing with strong budget reserves for a downturn, reduction of debt, paying down pension obligations, and reaching the financial targets required to reduce the state income tax another half a percent in 2026. I worked all summer and fall to write and present several key bills to the interim joint committees, and they will be officially filed the first week of session. First, BR-26 is a bipartisan electronic privacy bill that covers several dangerous emerging technologies. Five provisions. First, places limitations on the exploding use of license plate readers, outlawing the sale of the captured data and the retention of that data beyond 30 days, except for felony prosecutions and court orders. Second, it prohibits the government or your nosy neighbors from using a drone to spy on your private property with enumerated exceptions for legitimate uses and, of course, your permission. Third, prohibits the non-consensual dissemination of artificial intelligence deepfakes of your image or voice and makes it a Class D felony if such dissemination is harmful to a person, their reputation, or their election. This is especially critical to get in place before the 2024 elections where it's anticipated that nefarious use of such deepfakes will be made. Fourth, prohibits placing a non-consensual electronic tracking device on your person, like in your pocket or in your belongings to, uh, to track you somehow for some reason. Uh, fifth, prohibits governments and employers from coercing individuals to accept implantation of an electronic tracking device on their body known as human microchipping. This is a process we've used in America for pets for some years. And believe it or not, 50,000 humans in Europe have consented to implantation of an electronic device to track them. We don't need that here in America, at least not coerced. 
BR 24 is a voter roll cleanup transparency bill that compels the Board of Elections to produce an annual report listing every address in Kentucky that contains a registered voter without any personal identifying information and provides a web portal to report anomalies for investigation, like multiple families registered at your home or multiple individuals registered in a gravel parking lot. BR 25 provides for the post-election ballot count audits in every single county. The Attorney General will randomly select a single ballot tabulator in each county and one race on that tabulator for a public witness human eyeball recount to compare to the printed election night tally sheet. Any discrepancies would trigger additional AG investigation in conjunction with their current post-election audits. Next is the widely publicized Safer Kentucky Act that I co-sponsored with another six Jefferson County legislators. This includes a provision I worked hard on, the street camping ban. You may have seen that on WBRB-TV. They did a series on that. But the Safer Kentucky Act provides harsher penalties for violent crime, more support for law enforcement, reforms on bail funding and parole board, involuntary mental health confinement, and other provisions to combat violent crime and gang activity in our cities, really statewide, but especially in Jefferson County. The next bill is uh, BR-145. It's a fire protection change notification rule. This would prevent people in suburban fire districts from having a surprise reduction in their fire and EMS coverage like we had here in Fisherville in my district. Uh, kind of an ugly surprise that resulted in the doubling of some fire insurance uh, bills before we got that resolved. So those are the bills that I've been working on writing, sponsoring this summer and getting through committee. There's a number of other things that are going on that are good that I want to support by my co-sponsorship. And uh, among those include measures that shrink the government, reduce regulation, safeguard our liberty, and protect us from intrusive leftist ideology. Uh, those bills would include a constitutional amendment allowing school choice in Kentucky. Um, Jennifer Decker is working on a DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion bill that would limit the use of this harmful ideology in our publicly funded schools and universities. Uh, DEI is frequently characterized as teaching people to hate other people based on their immutable characteristics. It has no place in our educational system. Uh, third is uh, working with Representative Doan on eliminating sales tax on the purchase of gold and silver bullion as we enter some difficult economic times, perhaps. Uh, fourth, working with other representatives on restrictions that prevent China and nations hostile to the United States from acquiring strategic assets here like farmland or land near military bases. Um, there'll be more, but that, those are a few of the highlights. In all, there will be over a thousand bills introduced and part of our job is to pre prevent the bad ones from passing. Included in that list of bad ones for me are red flag bills and generally anything that grows government control and surveillance over its citizens. And of course, anything spends excess money. Like last session, there will be hundreds of bills that pass, about 85% of them with overwhelming bipartisan majorities because they're taking care of problems that there is broad consensus on correcting. Very few of those bills will be covered by the media, but they are the core of the legislative work every year. So as a citizen, please stay alert for updates, read up on the bills that get filed, be active in contacting your legislator about issues of vital concern to you during the session. That input does make a difference. Thanks for listening.
And that was the message from John Hodgson. Hopefully you learned something there. We might uh, dig into some of his bills here in future episodes. Um, but we're running up on a break here. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I'll see you guys back here in just a few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Uh, we've been going over some out-of-control spending. We're going over uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion spending in salaries alone that the state has done. Spending $1.6 in salaries for people who all deal with diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's probably not nearly close to all of it. Um, because it gets it gets iffy. So like when you look at the Board of Education website, you see that there's coordinators, regional coordinators, but they work for other school districts. So the real figures probably in the tens of millions that they're spending on developing these programs and the employees, but just people who have diversity, equity and inclusion in their titles, one point six million dollars in taxpayer salaries. Absolutely out of control. And I wish, like I said, I wish Cameron had been able to conceptualize just how big the problem is. Why having a liberal governor means so much to people who have Kentucky values, because when you have a liberal governor, he's taking your tax dollars and spending them to attack your liberal values. But that's not the only place I want to talk about of potential waste today. I actually uh, have something kind of interesting I want to share with you. So there's something in Kentucky called the uh, Kentucky Entertainment Incentive. And this is a tax credit system that Kentucky offers to filmmakers, movie makers, you know, people in the arts of media to come and film and perform and make their films and TV shows here in Kentucky, to make it here in Kentucky. Now, there is uh, a few thoughts on this. And one, this, this is a fairly large entertainment incentive package. Uh, you know, it depends on how you look, obviously, at tax credits. Some people look at tax credits as not government spending. Some people look at tax credits as saying, oh, look, that is tax money you would have brought in anyways. Now you have to pull in more money from elsewhere in order to make up the difference. So that means you have to tax others more in order to uh, offset this tax credit. The way I look at it is this, is is what the government's spending money on or offering incentives on, is that hitting your pocketbook, right? Does that affect you, the taxpayer? And anytime you hand out economic or entertainment, in this case, incentives, any kind of incentive plans to private companies where they don't have to pay certain amounts of tax dollars, well, that in turn becomes quite a question of is that worthwhile? Because if you're trying to make ends meet in the government, well, you got you to gotta tax now other people more to make up the difference. And the total amount of Kentucky Entertainment tax credit available in a calendar year here in Kentucky is $75 million. And so far requested to date, we've had $60,659,717 of tax incentives requested from the entertainment industry here in Kentucky may say, wow, that is a lot of money. Hopefully somebody's making a big old movie here in Kentucky. Now there's some arguments for why you would be for or against this kind of, you know, this kind of incentive. There's an argument that if you make a certain film, so to give you an example, one of these films that I would say you could look at, it would be um, this here from the Prosper Media Group called Downstream Bluegrass Tour 2023. It's a documentary. 
Uh, they only got a $10,234 credit for this, but you could see how something where they're doing a bluegrass tour, this is, you know, they're creating a documentary about Kentucky that could draw people into Kentucky. Really, it's kind of like uh, you could save money on your tourism uh, funds by going ahead and giving money here because it encourages people to come in. The state of Kentucky doesn't have to make a documentary or programming to encourage people to come visit Kentucky if something like Downstream Bluegrass Tour 2023 does it. So an argument could be, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm not saying government should be involved in this, I'm just saying an argument could be that by offering these kinds of incentives out, you're able to get films made, TV shows made that encourage people to travel to and visit Kentucky. That creates jobs, that creates economic opportunities for people, that creates tax revenue, so it's worth it. It's a quote-unquote investment now. I hate saying the word investment when it comes to government because government doesn't invest, but offering these tax incentives is a investment now in order to, in order to uh, move into the future offering and figuring out um, and, and creating more revenues in the future, specifically in our tourism. So if that's your thought process, this has to benefit Kentucky some way. You would like to see a more restrictive tax credit offers, whether that would be, uh, it has to be a big film that people want to know where was this filmed at, right? We Like Lord of the Rings, a lot of people know uh, it was filmed in, in some pretty picturesque areas of New Zealand, which, you know, obviously people see those rolling hills, things like that. They say, oh man, that looks like a beautiful country. I want to go check it out. Right. So, so maybe if it's a big film like that, that could really attract in people to visit Kentucky, but let's, let's look at some of these projects and ask some important questions about whether or not they should be getting a tax incentive uh, for doing this. Um, let's see some of the movies here, a Royal Christmas surprise, a Royal Christmas surprise. Now, last I checked, we don't have any royalty in Kentucky. Um, this isn't a movie I potentially have really heard of. So perhaps it may bring in some people, but a Royal Christmas surprise was worth $208,863 in potential tax credits. I'd love to know how they believe this will bring people into Kentucky. I'd love to know. But we continue. That's just a small example. But there's some of these that I would I would disincentivize from being in Kentucky, right? For an example, Thousand Pound Sisters season five got a six hundred and sixty six thousand one hundred and twenty one dollar potential tax credit for filming season five of Thousand Pound Sisters here in Kentucky. Now the question becomes. Do you want the show A Thousand Pound Sisters to be filmed in Kentucky? I've actually never seen the show. I've heard of the show, season five. I don't know if they live in Kentucky, but if they do, fine. Okay, you, you film it. I'm not saying the government should stop them from making the program, but I'm asking the question. Do you want Kentucky being known for the Thousand Pound Sister seasons? Do you want the Kentucky being known as a place where the Thousand Pound Sisters is being made? I don't even know if it's being filmed here. If it's just made here, I guess, or, or does some editing here, they can get these tax credits. That doesn't make sense either because here's, here's an example. Wrigley Media Group, they're out of Lexington, doing House Hunters Rex on the Beach, which is a television show. They got $152,500 tax credit. 
Now, while uh, Kentucky has many lakes with wonderful beaches, I don't particularly think that Rex on the beach is being filmed in Kentucky. If I have to imagine house hunters, Rex on the beach is probably looking at people looking for houses on the beach that are probably Rex. And so they plan on, I don't know, flipping them or improving them or building them up, whatever probably on the beach. And when you think of the beach, you're thinking of the ocean. So I'm going to guess that house hunters Rex on the beach was mainly filmed on the beach. What are they doing in Kentucky Wrigley media group, other than just simple editing jobs, maybe they're filming some B roll, so on and so forth. How will this bring people to Kentucky? How does uh, this tax credit of $152,500 benefit Kentuckians? It's the government. What they're doing should benefit Kentuckians. That may benefit that one business. It may benefit a few employees working at Wrigley Media Group, where now they can, you know, they hire people here or they can afford to do things cheaper, right? Don't get me wrong. That benefits that business and probably some slight individuals. But why is it government's role and responsibility to do that? I own several businesses. I employ around 30 employees. If we're just giving out tax incentives to people that just employ people, well, let's everybody should be lining up that owns a business. But that's not what they're doing. They're trying to do this specifically to attract the entertainment industry. But the question is, once again, if it's not bringing people to Kentucky, what's the use of it? And that brings me to, I have questions about three productions in particular. Um, I've been limited on the amount of research I can do to figure out what these shows are about simply because uh, I don't want to open myself, uh, not open myself up, but I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to go into the deep darkest places of the internet to figure out what these are about. But there's three films called uh, our television programs. They're called or films called Sassy Maids 1, Sassy Maids 2, and Sassy Maids 3. Three different films that are getting a combined potential incentive of $3,380,000 each. So about $10 million total in tax incentives to have Sassy Maids, Sassy Maids 2, and Sassy Maids 3 Filmed, made, produced, I guess, here in Kentucky. I have to ask the question. Is Kentucky giving a $10 million tax incentive to a company to film pornographic material here in Kentucky? That's that's the that's a $10 million question. I'm not going to figure out the answer to it. Um, you're welcome to try to figure out the answer to it if you want to deal with that. But uh I think we got to be asking $10 million for sassy maids one, two, and three. Come on. Let's ask some more questions. Let's ask some more questions. Well, y'all, that's what we got time for today on the Andrew Cooper writer show. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll see you back here tomorrow uh, for the next show. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>